Love Talk Radio. about our favorite way to fly, Eastern Airlines. We're on twice weekly, Thursday afternoon, with REPA, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association Radio Hour, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and the Eastern Airlines Radio Show every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Both broadcasts are live call-in shows, and we welcome your comments on the air. Our hosts are from around the U.S. and our listeners from around the world. That's right, over 50 countries around the world have been identified who regularly listen in. We're glad you're with us. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and the producer of the show. I hope you enjoy tonight's broadcast. And now I'll turn it over to Chuck Albright, our announcer. We'll get the show in the air. Chuck, it's all yours. Thank you, Neil. Hello, Eastern family and friends. This is your producer. As your producer said, we're glad you're with us for more Eastern talk, news, and information. My name is Chuck Albright, and I'm coming to you live from the villages of Florida, just north of Orlando. Our producer, Captain Neil, is in St. Augustine, and our hosts are scattered all over the country. Let's start up in the uh, New York, Long Island area with Captain Mike Scott, and on the other side of the, the island is Captain George Jen. Hi, guys. From you. All right. We also have Captain Jim Holder and his wife, Carrie Holder, in the Atlanta area. How are you guys doing tonight? Lieutenant Perry, how are we doing? We're doing fine. Well, that sounds great. Colleen DeFleece is just north of Tampa in Wesley Chapel, Florida. Hello, Colleen. How are we well, doing? Uh, Chuck, Colleen is not with us. And, of course, uh, everyone knows that she's in the hospital. She had uh, a cancer operation. And uh, she emailed me tonight saying that she's out of the ICU and, and she was unable to be with us tonight. So it's great to hear that uh, at least she's getting back on the computer, and we wish her well. Colleen, get well fast and come back with us. We Okay, back to you. Thank you very much. Uh, we also have um, Harry Lindquist is over in the Billmore area, Brunswick, I believe, to be exact. Hello, Harry. Hey, Chuck, good to have you back. Thank you very much. Mark Parter is our Eastern 3.0 reporters in Miami area. Hello, Mark. How's it going down there? I am here, but I am going to head further south. It's freezing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gets a little cool down there every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those okay, places. Uh, where we're here in the villages where I am at is Dorothy and Don Gagnon. How are you guys doing? I know the weather's just fine. Uh Turn their microphone on. There you go. Dorothy? Don? Hey, Dorothy and Don, how are we doing tonight? Well, we got the wrong one. Oh. I had Norma Jeans. I had Norma Jeans on. There we well, are. This next. panel this paneling is getting too difficult for me to handle. I'm gonna quit. 
Boy, are we organized or what? Uh, yeah, We're having a good time tonight. <laughs> well, I can hear Dorothy and Don. How are you guys doing? Yeah, we're, we're doing, doing we're doing great. Thank you. Okay, I guess we're down to Norma Jean. How is how is it going where you are? It's fine. It's we're not shoveling snow. It's cold, <laughs> and it's going to be colder tomorrow. Well, that's good. But we're all grateful to be in Florida. And well, Chuck, thank you very I much. I didn't hear the voice of uh, Carrie Holder. Carrie, how you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm here. Everybody's fine. Everything's okay. good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, from all our hosts, welcome. And thank you for listening and calling in on the show for over the past 10 years. You've truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. Now, I see we're number one for takeoff, so, Captain, let's get flight 485 in the air. Eastern, 485, this is Raleigh Tower. You're cleared for takeoff. Roger, Raleigh Tower. Eastern, 485 is on the roll.
grew as the war went on. Women also worked as radio and telegraph operators, supervisors for naval shipments, commissary stewards, fingerprint experts, draftsmen, pharmacists, torpedo assemblers, and camouflage designers. Once the Navy realized young women in uniform were good publicity, publicity, it trained female yeomen to march and perform basic military drills so they could parade in support of war bond drives, troop send-offs, and other official events where goodwill was valuable. And uh, also, Dorothy, the American press dubbed them yeomanettes. Daniels objected to the nickname, saying, I never did like the E-T-T-E business at the end. If a woman does a job, she ought to have the name of the job. So the official designation, yeoman, made it clear women were the institutional equivalent of men who held the same rank. Although they were not allowed to serve at sea, female yeomen received the same pay as sailors and marines, at the same rank, a uniform allowance, medical care, and war risk insurance. The U.S. Army didn't do as well by the young women it recruited to serve as telephone operators in France, however. The telephone transferred military communications in the First World War because for the first time, commanders could communicate directly with frontline officers hundreds of miles away. All it took was a lightweight wire connection and the help of an operator. Jim? Thank you, George. When the United States entered the war, the Army Signal Corps consisted of 55 officers and only 1,570 enlisted men, all most of those who maintained telegraph wires. It was easy enough to build up the Signal Corps to to meet the new demand for telephone connections. The Army recruited 14 Bell Battalions staffed mainly by AT&T employees and their supervisors whose job was to install and maintain telephone equipment alongside the advancing American Army. General John Pershing soon realized operators were the weak point of the system, however. Adding trained operators to the system wasn't as easy as recruiting more men from AT&T. Eighty percent of the American telephone operators were women. Now, if the Army were going to use the telephone, they needed to recruit women. Pershing placed a request with the U.S. Department of War for 100 uniformed female telephone operators who spoke fluent French. Now, more than 7,600 trained women operators, I guess they spoke French, applied for the first 100 positions. Now, Mr. Producer, can you find an appropriate song for this first call for the ladies as they have become recognized as the Hello Girls. Imagine a time when the world was divided with two sides entrenched, dug in deep. Stuck in a stalemate, their fate undecided and some on the sidelines asleep. Imagine if one day you woke up to find that the world as you knew it might fall. And if you were there, would you answer the call? A world where freedom is under assault. A world drifting toward tyranny. A world where nationalism is on the rise. We're talking about the year 1918. Of course. Imagine our stage as the scene of a battle As vast as the meadows of France Hear the howlers roar and the browning dungeon battle As ten thousand soldiers advance And if you believe that our words have the power To conjure and capture it all When the trumpet is sounding the charge Will you answer the
exit until a new nation entered the scene. General Pershing called for his troops. Imagine America's war machine waking and making its global debut. Communication is key. Forces must be coordinated with our allies on the front across hundreds of miles. Imagine our general, the calls that he's making. It's taking too long to get through. It's not the equipment, sir. Most of our boys have never run a switchboard. He thinks this is war and it's no place for women. But he's desperate, he's back to the wall. We've got the best technology. Let's get the best operators. But the best operators are women. And that's who we need to win this war. It was a hundred years ago. It was a world at war. It was a time when nerves were tough and hearts were drumming. And there were some who were afraid, others who yearned for more. But for all of them, a change was coming. might give way before something brand new. Imagine our heroine longing to matter, to do something no matter how switchboard soldiers who accepted hazard without reservations to serve their country. Like the soldiers with whom they worked, they risked their lives. Unlike those soldiers, they were not considered part of the Army. The original advertisement sent out by the Signal Corps in response to Pershing's request called for women to serve overseas in the Army, and it is clear that most of the women believed they had enlisted but Army regulations clearly required soldiers to be male, a ruling left over from the Civil War when women enlisted disguised as men. Without the loophole that allowed Daniels to hire female yeomen, the Hello Girls were technically civilian contractors. They did not receive any of the benefits extended to soldiers during or after the war. They even had to pay for their own uniforms. When peace came, the Hello Girls were stunned to discover the Army did not consider them part of the military. Congress finally recognized the Hello Girls as World War I veterans in 1979. Too late to do most of them any good. Okay. The employment of women in the American military in World War I uh, was seen as a desperate measure in a war to end all wars, one that would never be needed to be repeated. And yet, as they left the service in their peacetime lives, the female yeomen and hello girls held open the possibility of return. As yeoman F. E. Lyle McLeod wrote to her discharge, No, I ain't yeoman it no more. And though I hate the very thought of war, if Uncle Sam should ever say, I need 10,000 girls today, would he get them? Well, I'll say, and more. And in fact, 20-some years later, Uncle Sam did call for 10,000 girls and more. During World War II, they came in as waves and wax and spars and wasps and showed the modern history of women in the military was only just beginning. And the definition for waves 
uh, was woman accepted for volunteer emergency service, and WAX was the Women Auxiliary uh, Correction Women's Army Auxiliary Corps Service. SPARS was a division of the U.S. Coast Guard. It was stood for the four freedoms: speech, press, assembly, and religion service. And WASPs, Women's Air Force Service Pilots, which fell into three categories: the Air Force, Army, and Auxiliary. You got a clip for that? That uniform like a million dollar doll. How my heart would leap when she drove her Jeep with the one big stripe on her arm. And it seemed to me that a PFC meant perfect feminine charm. First class private Mary Brown. Oh, how she smiled goodbye when they shipped us out of town. Let the big guns roar, let us win this war, cause I wanna hurry right back to first class private Mary Brown, my wonderful whack. Women's groups and impressed by the British use of women in service, 
General George Marshall supported the idea of introducing a women's service branch into the Army. In May 1942, Congress instituted the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, its members known as WACs, like Mike was saying, worked in more than 200 non-combatant jobs stateside and in every theater of the war. By 1945, there were more than 100,000 WACs and 6,000 female officers. In the Navy, members of Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Services, or WAVES, held the same status as Naval Reservists and provided support stateside. The Coast Guard and Marine Corps soon followed suit, though in smaller numbers. Norma Jean, did you know that on March 10, 2010, Nearly 70 years after they were disbanded, the Women Air Force Service Pilots received a Congressional Gold Medal. Wow, 70 years too late. Carrie, they certainly deserved a gold medal. One of the lesser-known roles of women played in the war effort was provided by the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. These women, each of whom had already obtained their pilot's license prior to service, they became the first women to fly American military aircraft. They ferried planes from factories to bases, transported cargo, and participated in simulation strafing and target missions, accumulating more than 60 million miles in flight distance and freeing up thousands of male U.S. pilots for active duty in World War II. More than 1,000 WASP, WASP, served, and 38 of them lost their lives during the war. They were considered civil service employees, and without official military status, these fallen WASP were granted no military honors or benefits. And it wasn't until 1977 that the WASP received full military status. On March 10, 2010, at a ceremony in the Capitol, the WASP received the Congressional Gold Medal, one of the highest civilian honors. More than 200 former pilots attended this event, and many were wearing their World War II-era uniforms. All the day long, where the rain or shine, she's the part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, roving. The riveter keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage, sitting up there on the fuselage. That little friend can do more than a male can do, roving. The Riveter, Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie, Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie, working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production knee, she was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie. The Riveter. Rosie, 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 the Riveter. On the 
Now, Harry, how about the Navy? What's going on there? Well, Jim, it was Loretta Walsh. On March 21st, 1917, Loretta Perfecta Walsh became America's first official enlisted woman of any service when she joined the Navy. In the spring of 1917, the United States began preparing for the inevitability of war. However, men were not enlisting in sufficient numbers. On March 19, 1917, Navy Secretary Josephus Daniels determined that women could be enrolled in the U.S. Naval Reserve Force and issued an order authorizing their enlistment. A few days later, permission was granted to enlist one woman with the idea that the enlistment of a woman might prompt young men to follow suit. Walsh was asked if she would enlist in the Navy Reserve Force as a chief yeoman. She immediately agreed. On March 24, 1917, after procuring and modifying a male chief petty officer's uniform, Walsh made history by enlisting in the Naval Reserve, the first woman to officially enlist in the military, and also the first female chief petty officer. Mike, who do we have at first in in the Coast Guard? Harry, we have two for that honor. Twin sisters, Geneve and Lucille Baker, transferred from Naval Coastal Defense Reserve to the Coast Guard during World War One, and may have been the first women to serve in service. While the women served in the Coast Guard as far back as the 1830s as civilian lighthouse keepers, it wasn't until World War One that they would wear uniforms for their service. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was some debate between the historians as to whether or not the 19-year-old twins were the first women to join the Coast Guard, or if it was Myrtle R. Hazard, who became the service's first female electrician January 21, 1918. That same year, the Baker sisters came over the, from the coast, to the Coast Guard from the Naval Coastal Defense Reserves, where they were previously serving. However, Hazard is the first woman to officially take the oath of enlistment of her service. Don, who we have in the Air Force, now is called back in that era uh, the United States uh, Army Air Corps. What do we have for you, Don? Well, thank you, Mike. Esther McGowan Blake, 1897 to 1975, uh, nine, was the first woman to serve in the United States Air Force. Her motivation to join the military was deeply personal. In 1944, the B-17 her son was piloting was shot down over Europe. Her younger son was also serving, and Blake was widowed. Blake first joined the Army Air Force in 1944 and was the first woman to enlist for regular Air Force duty when service within the newly formed branch was authorized for women on July 8, 1948, and with the announcement of free a man to fight, Blake rushed to the recruiting center and established, excuse me, enlisted on the first hour of the first day the Air Force announced that women would be allowed to serve. The end of the war saw the reunion of Blake and her two sons. Blake's service in the Air Force continued until 1954, at which time she, her commitment to her country continued in the form of service at the Veterans Regional Headquarters in Montgomery, Alabama, until her death at age 82 in 1979. Don, while the oldest military service in America does not officially state who the first woman to join the United States Army was, historians agree that it was Deborah Sampson. An indentured servant, Sampson joined the Continental Army in May 1781, though some reports place the year at 1782. And because women were not permitted to serve in the military, she disguised herself as a man by the name of Robert Shirtless. Sampson was injured multiple times, sustaining a saber wound to her head and a gunshot wound to her thigh. According to one source, she allowed a doctor to look at her head wound but removed a musket ball from her thigh herself. 
for fear that her secret would be discovered if she sought medical attention. According to a 1975 Army Times story, after Samson fell gravely ill, her attending physician, Dr. Barnabas Benny, discovered her gender, but kept it a secret. However, her ruse would be short-lived. The doctor's niece became enamored with the battle-tested young soldier, and not wanting to lead her on, Samson wrote a revealing letter, which the woman's uncle showed to the unit's commanding officer. General George Washington authorized her honorable discharge from the Army, and she returned to her home in Massachusetts in 1784. Following the advice of patriot Paul Revere, Samson lectured in Massachusetts, New York, and Rhode Island. Samson died April 29, 1827, and was buried at Rock Ridge Cemetery in Sharon, Massachusetts. Her tombstone reads, Deborah, wife of Benjamin Gannett, dies April 29, 1827, aged 68 years. The reverse side of her tombstone reads, Deborah Sampson Gannett, Robert Shirtloff, the female soldier service, 1781-1983. How about that? Uh, interesting. Very interesting about uh, the history of uh, women in the military services. And uh, because it uh, is December 7th, I would like to uh, play a speech that was written by Harry S. Truman uh, honoring Pearl Harbor. And um, this is uh, what uh, President Truman had to say. My fellow Americans... Supreme Allied Commander General MacArthur and Allied representatives on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. The thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There on that small piece of American soil anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. Four years ago, the thoughts and fears of the whole civilized world were centered on another piece of American soil, Pearl Harbor. The mighty threat to civilization which began there is now laid at rest. It was a long road to Tokyo and a bloody one. We shall not forget Pearl Harbor. The Japanese militarists will not forget the USS Missouri. The evil done by the Japanese warlords can never be repaired or forgotten. But their power to destroy and kill has been taken from them. Their armies and what is left of their navy are now impotent. To all of us, there comes first a sense of gratitude to Almighty God who sustained us and our allies in the dark days of grave danger, who made us to grow from weakness into the strongest fighting force in history, and who has now seen us overcome the forces of tyranny that sought to destroy his civilization. God grant that in our pride of this hour we may not forget the hard tasks that are still before us, that we may approach these with the same courage zeal and patience with which we face the trials and problems of the past four years. Our first thoughts, of course, thoughts of gratefulness and deep obligation, go out to those of our loved ones who have been killed or maimed in this terrible war. On land and sea and in the air, American men and women have given their lives so that this day of ultimate victory might come and assure the survival of a civilized world. No victory can make good their loss.
And may we always remember. Best we great show, guys. Thanks so much. Great show. Great show. Great show. Thank you. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, it was. Uh, oh, don't know what to say right now. However, uh, we do have uh, some information about the new Eastern Airlines, and uh, that uh, will be delivered to us by none other than our new Eastern Airlines reporter and historian, Mark Porter. What's going on, Mark, well, hello. with the new Eastern? Well, there's, there's not too much going on because of, of COVID. So there, I mean, there are extensions. For example, service was supposed to start very soon out of Los Angeles to Guayaquil, Ecuador, but they've asked for an extension on that. They may launch on time, but they don't know since everyone is more or less having to stay at home right now. And so they've asked the government, you know, please don't make us fly with empty planes. And um, then most of the other other fleet is just coming together, um, but they're, get, they're having a hard time getting uh, clearance on some of the airports they want to go into. So, but Guayaquil is doing well, um, Ecuador. And they have four flights a day there and three out of Miami. Uh, and Santa Domingo is coming up. But um, Haiti's on the board, but there's no service to Haiti. Um, so Bolivia's on the board, but there's no service to Bolivia. So evidently there's some issues that are they're having technical uh, problems with. Uh, Argentina's on the board and there's no service to Argentina. So I think it's a lack of... They have aircraft, but they're only allowed to fly three aircraft commercially. So while they have like 18 aircraft, you're only allowed to fly three uh, and you're going to 18 destinations. Um, you the, the rest you have to do is either charter or as repatriation flights, which they really aren't. Um, and you'll see that a lot of them down on the site are um, – sort of repatriation flights to uh, Paraguay and Uruguay. and They're not repatriation flights, but they don't want to spend probably another $25 million to have another aircraft put in as a com- in part of the commercial fleet. And I'm not sure why they have proved um, from their bankruptcy that they, they can afford to fly another aircraft uh, and put in $25 million down because that becomes very expensive. Uh, if you just four aircraft is a hundred million. So, well, Mark, and all aircraft, why only all three airplanes are, out of sixteen airplanes they have? Why can they only fly three of those airplanes? I don't understand that. Well, evidently the uh, DOT Department of Transportation gave them clearance to fly the two airplanes, um, and then they. They were doing really well in Ecuador, so they need a third airplane because with a third airplane, you can get another three destinations because they only fly the destinations like two to Guayaquil. But now they're doing really well, so they're flying four times a week to Guayaquil. Well, then that takes up a whole airplane that they weren't really counting on, whereas the with uh, two two times a week, that would be six destinations. But they can't they don't they can't do the two times a week because they're being too profitable out there to some destinations so they asked for a third and they went and they got 25 million dollars to back it up to they could have this third aircraft in their fleet so that was their third but what bedoggles me is like are the restrictions that tight on eastern because they went bankrupt once under dynamic that each aircraft is $25 million? I cannot believe that because that it would, it would be almost impossible to get off the ground. But where, where does the $25 million go? Well, what's it used for? For maintaining no that one airplane. Now, I think that's no a fin- if, if I'm not wrong here, I might be wrong, but I remember when I was on the certification of an airline in Pittsburgh, 
And we had okay. to have, uh, for approving, we had to have 15 million. Now, this was back in the early 90s, 15 million, and we had to show that as liquid money that uh, in the event that I guess we went out of business, it was there to do the refunds and things like that. So I believe it's a DOT requirement that they have a reserve and it's put a, put aside for that purpose, I believe. Yeah, I'm not sure what the exact amount is, but that's what they proved that they had gotten. And then Kenneth Woolley came forward and said, if necessary, I can put another $50 million in. Hmm. But that's that's if he's talking about $50 because that's two more aircraft, each time you have to make um, bring another aircraft in, that would be a very expensive endeavor. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it does look what like – tra- What are they charging – what kind of fares are we charging here for this to, to counteract this $50 million? That's what I'm trying to figure um, out. They're, they're what, what is, what is the ticket fares. cost? About eight hundred dollars, or <laughs> no? Their tickets are about uh, five something to uh, Guayaquil. Mind you, the, the the places they pick, like Ecuador and Georgetown, those are rather close destinations. So JetBlue is right up their butt and has prices lower than they do. And JetBlue is offering two suitcases and they're willing to swallow all the the loss and try and pound Eastern out of the market. Whereas what I think Eastern has the seven, six, seven. So let's fly them down into Rio and Sao Paulo and Santiago de Chile and Buenos Aires, Argentina and Cordoba de Argentina and Mendoza, Argentina. And then if you really want to get fun, let's go to exotic destinations like Easter Island, Manaus, Brazil, San Carlos de Bariloche, I mean, these are exotic, um, you know, destinations that their 7.6s and 7.7s can go. And you could take it straight out of JFK or St. Louis, and you could go to Rhodes, Greece, or you could go to Porto, uh, Portugal, or you could go to um, into, what am I looking for, um, like uh, Zurich or Geneva. Geneva has no nonstops from any U.S. carrier. Do, okay. do they have enough people interested in, in doing all? I mean, I've been to a lot of these well, garden they probably, spots. They, uh, you know, but they probably, they probably in the exotic spots? Well, yeah, a lot of these – I mean, people are broke nowadays. So, I mean, I don't know right. where, where yeah, they no, want to get up waiting, and go to waiting. these places. I've been – like I said, I've been to a lot of these places before. And, I, mm-hmm. and I, you know, once I went there, I didn't want to go back anymore. So I mean that was yeah, it. So, so, so I don't know what all of these people are doing, but so you know but, I, I'm, um, I'm only looking you know, at I it mean, from an outsider. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think in in late uh, 21, you could have an aircraft or so that could cater just to the wealthy. Um, well, that's that, usually think, the case you know, all the time. Yeah, but there are not many people that have been to, let's say, Easter Island. You know, I don't think. Anyway, anyone on the show here been to Easter Island? Uh, I have <laughs> not. No. Only yeah. on the Nature Channel. <laughs> yeah, and so and Easter Island, and then and then if you really want to go like to the Switzerland of the Americas, you know that's San Carlos de Bariloche. I mean, it's an untapped, just absolutely gorgeous area that I I've been to since I lived in Argentina. But um, and, and these are things that. Are, and then the Napa Valley equivalent is Mendoza, Argentina. All of those without U.S. carriers. And once a week, let's say Wednesday, into the, those places, I think people would be interested to go down to a different area. And uh, I think it would take a while to build up. But your New York crowd, your L.A. crowd, your Chicago crowd, those would be the, the savvy ones that would have at least heard about it and might be interested in going. I think well, there's a I believe in the in the in the present situation they may be looking for a one way ticket down to these places. Yeah, and that's very <laughs> true. I heard that. <laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a good time people are going on vacation anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, no. thank you very much, Mark. We are time limited here and I just wanted to uh I forgot during the ladies uh, part of our show that I read on 
or I saw on the internet tonight before uh, the show that we have our first lady aircraft carrier commanding officer. I don't know yeah, her name, I saw that. but uh, she is the first aircraft carrier commanding officer. She was a helicopter pilot and uh, quite a resume. I can't remember it and don't have time to talk about it, but um, that was uh, uh, the first one. That's huge. So, yeah, that is huge. So I'm sure she'll be a flag officer very soon. Uh, well, women pilots, women, women pilots are just as well as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're as good oh, yeah. or better than most pilots are. Because the little <laughs> that I used to do flight instructing years and years ago, female in, uh, students were, were way better than the than the guys were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I they flew that say, airplane pilot. She was really good. They can certainly thread a needle. <laughs> Yes, definitely. With an airplane. (laughs) With an airplane. Uh, Dorothy, before you take over here, I want to tell you that tonight's broadcast is our 599th broadcast. So next broadcast will be 600 in the archive. Kudos to you, Neil and Dorothy. Uh, all of all of you guys, here, here. Are, and everybody that contributed. Yeah, I'm, I picked up the tail end. Yeah, it's uh, it's been fun. It's been fun, Dorothy. How about the rest of it? Okay, over the many years, nearly ten now, the EAL radio show has brought you 599 broadcasts of Monday and Thursday shows. Our purpose, of course, is to keep the memories alive for the many in the Eastern family and to remind those who were not employees of the great airline what a tremendous airline it was that dominated the airline industry from the 20s to the 80s. The legacy will continue with the great associations like the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, the Eastern Airlines Silver Liners, the many Facebook pages committed to Eastern Airlines and the Eastern Airlines radio show and website. Now, do any of our hosts or listeners have an announcement that you might want to add right now? Anyone? No, I've got a website, though. (laughs) Nothing except for our our Bill Hirsch, our Eastern historian. He's uh, still status quo in the hospital, so... And oh, Colleen, our prayers and our thoughts will be with him. And yeah. Colleen is improving. She yes. sent me an email today, that's so good. that's good. Thoughts and prayers are with her too. Just keep praying for her to yeah. get better right away. And now we're approaching the airport and the end of our Eastern Flight 485 show. And what a fascinating show it really was, and thank you, Neil, so much. We learned quite a bit. Mm-hmm. We will be back yeah. next week sharing more great Eastern music and history and talk. It looks like we are entering the controlled airspace of Savannah. So, Captain, would you please do another grease job you Eastern <laughs> pilots are accustomed to make? Most of the time. Eastern, 485. This is <laughs> Savannah Tower. <laughs> You're cleared to land on runway one zero. Roger, clear to land on runway one zero, Eastern four eighty five. Folks, you're invited to be with us next Monday, December the 14th, when we will play Christmas like you've never heard it before. Join us for a sleigh bell flight. Now, it might be a good time to catch our next broadcast, December the 10th, of the REPA Radio Hour at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. 
stories about the pilots of Pacaran Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. If you've not heard one of these broadcasts, you've really missed out on some of the great Eastern talks with more great stories by Eastern people. Our producer's telling me it's time to say goodbye. This is Chuck Albright on behalf of tonight's host, Captain George Jen, Captain Mike Scott, Dorothy and Don Gagman, Captain Jim and Carrie Holder, Harry Lindquist, Norma Jean Bolger, Mark Porter, and our producer, Neil Holland, playing the sign-off music made popular by Merle Haggard, Silver Wings. Headed somewhere in flight They're taking you away Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world And good night, Eastern Airlines, wherever you are We love you, Eastern Now all of, the, of us on three One, two, three Good night, Eastern Good night, Eastern We love you Love Eastern Salute to all the women in World War One and Two, and uh, thereafter. Mighty, uh, and to all everybody from Pearl Harbor. Thanks so much, guys. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere. Taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Slowly fading out of sight. Great go, great show, guys. Thanks.